But you can go ahead and take your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 2. We'll continue a series we started a few weeks ago, Romans chapter 2. And the New Testament, the book of Romans, is a, a fan, uh, just a tremendous treatise on this topic of salvation and the gospel. In fact, we saw this even in our songs today as we were preparing our hearts for the message. The gospel has been front and center. And uh, one of the things about uh, Romans chapter 2 as we get into um, this book, we've already covered Romans 1, the theme verse of chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, which says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. The idea that God is saving Gentiles, not just Jews, that God's plan, God's goal with the gospel was that through faith, people could come into a right relationship with Him. What a tremendous message that is, and that's a message of hope. But the problem with this is that in order to get saved, you have to first get lost. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? You know what I mean by that? To get saved, you have to get lost. What that means is, is that in order for you to understand your need for salvation, in order for you to understand that you need to be saved, you have to understand you need to be saved. Like, people won't understand, people won't get saved, they won't trust Christ if they don't first understand their desperate need for salvation. It's one thing to be told the gospel, I think, and I think this is a reason a lot of our, our, our uh, evangelism might not be as effective as we might think it is. We do not lead with the law, we lead with God's love for them. And sometimes people don't recognize they need God's love or they need God's salvation. And so what Paul does in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and even chapter 3 is he lays out the, the reason that we need to be saved, the, the sin that is causing us separation from God. It is, it is driven home. And he starts with chapter 1 dealing with the pagans. In chapter 2, I've called, entitled this The Self-Righteous Judge. And what I'm doing tonight, I'm trying a couple different things. I don't know if this is going to work very well or not, but I'm going to try to draw on this thing here and seeing if it works well enough for you to follow. And there's your outline in front of you and your Bible. And between all that, we should be able to stay together. All right? So as you notice chapter 1, the gospel and the Gentiles' need for salvation, that's that blank at the top which says what chapter 1 theme is, is the gospel and the Gentiles' need for salvation. We saw that right in the beginning, as I mentioned, the gospel, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and then the Gentiles and their hearts being darkened, their minds being darkened, being given over to a debased mind, and their immorality which follows their idolatry and their ignorance. It, it all flows out of their rejection of God. And when you reject God, you reject Him as Creator you then take on the role of God yourself. You begin to define identity for yourself, and you get to choose what's right and what's wrong, what you want to do with your body. And he, he, lay, he, he talks about the depravity that flows out of a self uh, or a person who identifies themselves as the center of the universe. And you see that in chapter 1. So if you keep going in chapter 2, within the big picture of Romans... We have several different sections. Chapters 1 through 3 is about sin. And so we are in the middle of that section. Sin, and, 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 and uh, we started with chapter 1, as the Gentiles, our hearts are darkened. And if you finish up chapter 1 and you're a Jewish reader, what would be your temptation to say to yourself? It would be to say something along these lines. Boy, I'm glad I'm not like that. Boy, boy I'm glad I'm not uh, alienated in my heart and darkened. I'm glad that I'm a law-following, good Jewish person. That would be the temptation. If you finish chapter 1, what does he say? What's the last verse of chapter 1? He says this, "...who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are 
deserving of death, not only to the same, but those who, I'm sorry, but also approve of those who practice them. That is not the verse I was thinking. I'm thinking of the verse um, that says, but God, uh, where is it? Um, oh, I forgot where it is. I'll come back to it. I'm sure, I think I have it in my notes. I will find it in just a moment. But the idea that God is not a, he, he does, oh, there it is. It's in chapter 2, I'm sorry. Chapter 2, verse 11 is one of the theme, main theme of ideas here that God shows no partiality between Jew and Greek. The fact that the Jews, the fact that the Greeks or the Gentiles have fallen into depravity does not mean that the Jews are going to be left alone or going to receive some sort of special treatment, even though they are the people of God. Let's look at first, point number one is the condemnation of the self-righteous. The condemnation of the self-righteous. And in the first part here, verse one, the self-righteous judge has no excuse. That's your blank. He has no excuse. If you look at this verse, it says, therefore you are what? Inexcusable, O man. You are inexcusable, O man. And who is the man identified as inexcusable? What is he doing? What makes him inexcusable? What is he doing? He's judging. Whoever you are who judge, he's saying you, and he's defining. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. You know, you, the one who judges. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you who judge practice the same things. You look at the Gentile who is in his idolatry and you say, oh, I'm glad I'm not like that. He says, you be careful. If you, you are not so pure, you are self-righteous and you have no excuse. If you look at this, therefore here, whenever you see this phrase, therefore, whenever I'm in my Bible, I draw the three dots, which is just a conclusion idea. It's saying this is a, uh, he, he's making a statement based on the previous information given. Therefore, you are inexcusable. You have no excuse. No excuse could possibly be made. He's again speaking to an imaginary uh, opponent in a debate. He calls him, oh man, and he is condemning the pagans in chapter one. That's who he's condemning. And I think most likely this is a religious Jewish man, and we'll see that come into play in a few moments. So he's condemning the Gentile. Why is he condemned? Because whatever he does, whatever he judges another, he's judging another person, but he's doing the same thing. What do you, same thing. What do you call that? Hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. He, it's, it's not, let me just be clear, it's not a hypocrite to, to declare something wrong and to do that thing. It's not hypocrisy to declare something wrong and to do that thing. How many of you believe that, that, that lying is sin? Okay, good. How many of you lie? Okay? Now, here, here, here's hypocrisy, is when you get all over your spouse for leaving their stuff out. How dare, what are you doing? Can't you see I'm trying to keep this place clean? Why would you do that? Meanwhile, have you seen your corner? It's a disaster, right? You, you judge someone for doing something. Meanwhile, you're doing the same thing. That's hypocrisy. It's not saying it's wrong to lie and then lying. That is not, it's wrong to judge and at the same time be doing that. That is what's going on here, okay? Other, I'm trying to avoid that. There's, there's often what you'll hear from secular people is that you're being a hypocrite if you, if you um, 
if you uh, declare that anything is right or that you hold a standard, you say, you should not lie. Well, do you lie? Well, yes, then you're a hypocrite. No, that's not the same thing. I, you, I, I, God says lying is wrong. I, the fact that I fail to live up to that standard does not make me a hypocrite if I declare what God says is right. What, where, I, where I am hypocritical is if I judge you for something, meanwhile I am doing it. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, let's keep going. The self-righteous person is condemning the Gentile for rejecting God, but he also is rejecting God. Okay, let's look at the second part, verses two through three. The self-righteous judge cannot escape, that's your blank, cannot escape God's righteous judgment. But we know, he says, that the judgment of God is according to truth. Now, this phrase is according to truth means something like truly, is, is, is surely, is truly against those who practice such things. God will surely judge those who commit sin. If you're going to do this sin and you're condemning others, do you really think God will excuse you for your behavior just because you're condemning other people? Verse 3, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those who practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think that you will escape? His judgment, he believes, frees him from the sin that God is judging. In other words, he believes that he will escape God's judgment because he judges others. And I, I don't know exactly what's in his mind here, but I have, uh, in, in thinking about this and, and meditating on it, I believe there are two possible excuses that we all have and that this person might have for this escaping, why he believes he's going to escape God's judgment while he judges others for doing the same sin. And the first is delusional self-deception. That's your blank. Delusional self-deception. He might say, well, God doesn't really see everything. God doesn't really know I will escape judgment because God does not see what I'm doing. He says, do you really think you'll escape God's judgment? Like, how, how foolish do you think God is? How, how foolish are you? You're delusional if you think you're going to escape. The second excuse, I think, is probably actually a little more likely here, is that that is legalism. Legalism. And here, here's, the, here's the heart of it, okay? See if you can follow me. God will overlook my faults because He will see my righteousness. God, God's going to overlook that because I'm doing all this. Uh, God, God, I mean, yes, of course I sin in those ways. Yeah, but uh, look at all the good things I do. Look how righteous I am. Look at my family. Look at my history. Look at where I come from. He says, you believe you can escape God's judgment because you're doing good elsewhere. You might think because you've done all these good things that whatever bad things don't really matter to God, but he says you cannot escape God's judgment. Your good deeds don't outweigh the bad things you've done. It's folly to think that. In fact, what he says in verses 4 and 5 is that the self-righteous judge is storing up, that's your word, storing up God's wrath against him. Look at this verse. For if you, or do you, this is so um, convicting, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering not knowing the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with the hardness and your impenitent heart, you are, look at this phrase, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, he says, the first question, let me go back to this, this verse, verse 4, 
do you despise God's patience? How do people despise God's patience? Here described as His goodness, His forbearance, and His long-suffering. How are you doing that? Well, what is the reason God is patient with us when we sin? He's loving. It says it right here. Why is God's goodness there? What is it leading us to? Repentance. God's patience with us is not because He approves. It's because He is giving us time to repent. Okay, you might sin. Let's just imagine that you start getting involved in sin. You start stealing things. From, you start shoplifting. Let's just use that as a random example. You start shoplifting at the store, and nobody catches you. And, and so you get away with it, and you now have these items which you stole, and you might feel guilty about it, but you think, well, you know what? I'm just going to give extra in the offering, and God will understand. Legalism, offsetting your sin by saying, well, I'll do righteous things. But you like the rush of stealing, and so you do it some more, and you steal more and more things, and then eventually you get so used to stealing and you get really good at it that you're getting, you're getting a lot of stuff, and you're going home, and you're, 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 you're selling it on eBay. You're doing all kinds of things with this stuff, and you're thinking to yourself, well, no one's caught me. No one knows. And if God really thought this was bad, surely something bad would have happened by now. I mean, no one has caught me. No one has seen me. There have been no cameras on. I mean, can, you, can you follow the logic? And you might actually catch yourself thinking, well, God doesn't really, God must not care that much. If God really cared, he would stop me. How many of you have ever thought this? God, if you really don't want me to do this sin, stop me. Like, that is, that is, um, that's exactly what's going on here. This, this idea that they are, God's patience with us, God, the fact that God doesn't strike us dead when we sin is not meaning that God doesn't approve, that God somehow approves of what we're doing. What He's doing is He's showing us patience, hoping that we will repent. So there is a patience there. Also remember that God has been patient with me. Because God has been patient with me, what should I extend to other people? Patience and forgiveness. Matthew, let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. I want you to see this um, a tremendous uh, parable that Jesus tells Matthew 18. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. You can almost feel Peter's self-righteousness oozing off the page. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. I like to think there, pause. I like to think there that Jesus paused for effect. I, like to, I, I do not say to you up to seven times. And Peter's like, oh, good. I overshot it. And Jesus says up to 70 times. That's just my imagination. Forgive me for that. Um, he tells a story. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who went to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's 10,000 days, days labor. It's impossible for him to pay back in a lifetime. As he was not able to pay, his master commanded he be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had, his payments be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him of the debt. The picture is obvious. That is like us. We have such a great debt before God, and God forgives us a debt we cannot pay. Verse 26 or 28. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's $20, $50, not a lot. It's enough you could pay back. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me for what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Sound familiar? It's the same phrase used earlier. And he would not. 
But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when the fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that he had done. Then his master, after he had called him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had what? Compassion on your fellow servant as I had pity on you. And his master was angry, delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. We need to be careful to recognize that we do not have any right to judge others in this way. We have been forgiven a great debt. We should be very careful about our bitterness towards other people. Go back to Romans chapter 2. How, just a quick application question as we look at this chapter, how self-righteous are we if we do not give grace to others who have failed? How self-righteous are we? Judgment is coming harshly on those who are self-righteous. If you're a self-righteous person who likes to judge other people, you should be aware that this judgment you dish out to others, God is storing up for you when the time is right. Look at verse 5. He is treasuring up wrath according with your hardness and your impenitent heart, your unrepentant heart. Judging others is failing in this area. You're failing to extend grace. As I mentioned in verse Four, don't ever mistake God's patience for his ignorance. Don't despise the riches of the goodness of God, his good, forbearing, and long-suffering traits of God. Let's keep going. Verse 6, we see um, here, God does not show partiality between the Jew and the Gentile. Who will render to what? Render to? Read it if you have it. Each one according to his deed, Jew and Gentile. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Here we go. Jew, Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew, and also to the Greek, for there is what? No partiality with God. You can tell from the quotes in our English translation here that we're dealing with Old Testament quotes, and I, there are a bunch of different verses this possibly could come from, as God does not show partiality between Jew and Gentile. By the way, that last blank is don't mistake God's patience for his ignorance or approval, in case you missed that. Don't mistake God's patience for his ignorance or approval. God does not show partiality between Jew and Gentile, like Psalm 62, 12, Proverbs 24, 12, Jeremiah 17, 10, Jeremiah 32, 19. All these verses reflect these quotes God will render each one according to his deed. God is not one who respects people based on their nationality or their, even their religion. God's wrath will be against sinners, whether they are Jews or Greeks. Because if you look at verses 7 through 9, everyone will be uh, held accountable for their own actions. And we see, notice, to the Jew and to the Greek, to the Jew and to the Greek, there is no partiality with God. There's judge, in verse 9, there's judgment to the Jew and to the Greek, tribulation, anguish on every soul who does evil. There is blessing to the Jew and to the Greek. God does not show partiality. And this is a really, really important point that the self-righteous Jewish judge 
will face the same harsh judgment from God that a pagan idolater will. That God will, God will judge both. That one will not escape, the, the Jewish person will not escape the judgment of God because he's a Jew, because there is no partiality with God. And if we keep going, we see the reality of what's on the inside versus what's on the outside. And here's the, the question, how is it that God can say this? There's no partiality with God. Look at these verses as he talks about the law being written on their hearts. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have these, who have the law by nature, do these things of the law in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. This can be a little confusing, so I want to walk through this very carefully. First, notice that religion, that's your blank, does not prevent people from breaking the law. Again, if you look at the contrast between Jew and Gentile in verse 12, he makes a sharp distinction between that is a person who's a Jew who possessed the law and a Gentile is one without the law. And he says this, that those who sin without the law perish without the law. That is, they have access to, they do not have access to Mosaic law. They will actually not be judged by the specifics of the Mosaic law because it was not accessible to them. There are things about the Mosaic law that the Jews had that the Gentiles did not. Those who sin in the law, who's that talking about? Jews, right? They will be judged by the law. They're going to be held responsible for the law. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, didn't you just say that God is dealing with people, how is this consistent with what God is doing earlier when it says that God shows no partiality? Is God dealing differently with different people? How do you understand this? Look at verse 13. I think he begins to unfold this for us. He's saying that, that, that uh, we have here that it's not the ones, for the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. It's not the hearers but it's the doers. It's not the ones who have access to truth. It's the one who obeyed the truth. The, the Jews had access to all kinds of things. And this is a scary thought for us who have access to so much truth. They had access to the law, but they're not righteous just because they have access to the law. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Just because they have their Bible, because they have more revelation, does not mean that they are suddenly righteous, and the Gentiles aren't unrighteous because they don't have the law. Access to the law does not make one righteous or unrighteous. In fact, in verse 14, he says, Gentiles actually do things that are, uh, that, by their own nature, they do things that are in the law. These, although not having the law, they are a law to themselves. What he's saying is, is that God has given a conscience to man that is a moral compass that points uh, what between, the, and here's your blank there, the conscience is a God-giving moral compass that identifies the difference between the, quote, is and the ought. Okay, I was saying earlier, do, is lying wrong? And you say, yes. Do you lie? Yes. The lying is, is. This is what we do this. We lie. We should not lie. How do you know we shouldn't lie? It's what we do. Now, think about this. Why, why is there a difference between what is and what ought to be? Because we have a moral lawgiver. Are, are, are you, you see what I'm saying? Like, there's a difference between what is, what we do, and what we ought to do. 
right? We don't always do what we ought to do. There's a difference between those two things. And the question is, is how can, you can even do this without understanding the law. My children, before they can read and write, before I have expounded the Word of God to them as I do, you know, as a, as a parent, as a pastor, I, I try to teach them God's Word. Before we can actually go through the law, they know there are certain things that they're doing. They know that disobedience is wrong. Even Elise knows that disobedience is wrong, and she's one and a half. Can, she doesn't understand. I can't, I can't See, at least you have to understand something. God is the ultimate authority, and He has delegated authority to me, your Father. And when you disrespect your Father, you disobey your Father, you're disrespecting God and His authority. And you understand, at least, that you must um, respect your Father and obey your Father. So when I say it's time to go to bed, you must stay in your bed. You shall not get out of your bed and come and bother me. That is disobedience, and that is dishonoring to the God who made you. Do you understand? No, she does not understand. But she understands when I say, stay there, and then I leave, and she, and she you know what she did yesterday? <laughs> I, 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 I said, Elise, and she, and is this, this is streaming, I have to be careful. <laughs> and she ran, and she covered her bottom while she ran. <laughs> now, what does that mean? It means she knows that what she's doing is wrong, and she's anticipating some retribution, not retribution, some chastening from her father over her disobedience. Who taught her that? You know, God gave her that. God gave her a moral compass, a moral conscience. She knows the difference between what is and what ought. She knows she's doing wrong. She knows it. In her heart, she has not been trained in the Word. She does not know what a word is right? She is very, very young. She can't really speak except in babbles, and she can say like passy, and she can say thank you, and please, and she can say cookie. You know, these are things she can do. But can, can she articulate the law? No, but she understands moral compass. You get it? He says, in the same sense, you think you're so good. The Gentiles obey the law without having the law. How about that? He says, they do not have the law. They by nature do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. So, so you need to be careful here. He's, he's saying that there is a difference, that God has given a conscience, and the Jews probably think of themselves very highly for having the law of God, but God makes it clear that the moral law has been written on the hearts of men and of women. And Paul makes the point that the Jews are special because God says they were. They are the elect nation, but not because of anything they had or they knew. If you keep going to verse 16, he says, um, or keep reading verse 15, "...who show the work of the law written in their hearts..." their consciences also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Again, the picture here of the conscience of man provoking and showing the truth here, okay? Showing the difference between what is and what ought. And he says in verse 16 that the day of judgment will come in the end when God judges the secrets of men. God will judge the secrets of men by the judge Jesus Christ according to my gospel. The standard of judgment is Jesus. The standard of judgment is Jesus. What is Jesus' judgment? What, what is Jesus' uh, standard? How high was Jesus' standard? Perfection. So, will any of us meet that standard? If you think you do, you are, de you are deluded, or you think that God can't see, or you're legalistic. You are, not, you are not able to reach the standard of Jesus Christ. He is that 
day of, he is that judgment, the judging the secrets by Jesus Christ. What's the danger of being a hypocrite? Verses 17 through 24, the danger of being a hypocrite. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest in the law, make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and the truth in the law. Look at all this. He makes a big deal here about what they teach. What you teach is that blank there, what you teach. Look at all the ways in which they, they teach. They're called a law. They rest. They call it a Jew, sorry. They rest in the law. They make their boast in God. They know His will. They approve the things that are, they are instructed out of the law. They are a guide, a light, an instructor. And look at all the references to someone who's a teacher, something that involves authority. Knowledge is essential to knowing God and spiritual growth, but it's not a foolproof sign that you are a spiritual person. You can have a lot of spiritual knowledge and be a spiritual um, infant in your behavior. Look at all the ways he describes someone who can instruct. Because the next phrase, uh, verses 21 through 24, what you do, what you do, you therefore who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? That is a sarcastic rhetorical question. You who preach that a man should not steal, what's the question that follows? Do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who, are, who abhor idols, do you rob temples? If you boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law. He's referencing here the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. There's several commandments here. Stealing, right? Committing adultery. Worshiping a false god. And he's like, you're teaching these things, but are you not doing these things? So, what you do is very important. In fact, he says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is probably out of Isaiah 52, verse 5, reference here that it was in the exile, the Jews were in their sad condition that led the name of God being blasphemed among the nations. And, and Paul says, rather, I think we talked about this last time, rather than the Jews being a light to the Gentiles, they were being a reason for God to be blasphemed. In fact, the most important thing here, starting in verse 25, is your heart. He says, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, what in the world is circumcision? It's a sign of the covenant. It's profitable only if you're a keeper of the law. It's an outward sign of the law. And what's the deal? Why have an outward sign of the law if you're inwardly breaking the law? Therefore, verse 26, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirement of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In other words, is it more important that you are that you're part of the family, like the Jewish family, that you have the signs of the covenant, that you have the external signs, or is it more important that you actually do the law, or that you, out of the heart, are obeying the law? Verse 27, will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even if your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? 
For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. God's law is an inward thing. Circumcision is that of the what? In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. There is an important thing to do here that we must obey in the heart. If you know the right answers, it does not mean anything. Are you being obedient? This chapter hits us right between the eyes. He says, you are educated in the law, you are educated in the truth. You look at the pagans in the world out there and you say, at least I'm not like that. Does that remind you of any parables that Jesus told? Jesus said there was a Pharisee and a publican. And the Pharisee and the publican went to worship together. And the Pharisee were worshiping together. The Pharisee stood in the middle and raised his voice and said, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like that man, a tax collector, a cheat, an unrighteous man. I thank you. I'm not like him. And what did the, Pharise- what did the publican say? What did the tax collector say to God? He said, Lord, be merciful to me, a what? A sinner. You have to be lost before you can get saved. You have to recognize your lost condition. And I think sometimes as Christians, we have forgotten about our lost condition in some ways, where we were lost, but now we're found. And when you recognize how, how deep you were, when you recognize how bad sin is, you know what that causes us to, redu- to do? It causes us to rejoice in the salvation we have in Christ, right? Amen. We should rejoice because God sees our hearts. And God, God recognizes what's going on. And God is the one who saves us from our sin. What a wonderful thing to sing about. What a wonderful thing to rejoice in that God knows us. God knows our inner man. The, the, really, the challenge of chapter 2 is for the, the spiritual person, quote-unquote, the, the religious person, so, so to speak. It's kind of the person who thinks that their righteousness is outward. An example of this today, and we'll wrap up with this, would be someone who comes to church, dressed the right way, knows all the words to the songs, knows all the books of the Bible in order, has read the Bible through, can quote Bible memory verses, knows when to say amen and when just to nod, you know, that kind of person. They know all the right things to do, but inwardly and privately, their life is a disaster. And that hypocrisy, that person needs to address their sin with the truth here that God sees the heart. God knows and we are sinners desperately in need of a Savior.